Hi, folks, and welcome to the Health Lab. I am your host, Joel Blant. Episode four features Dr. Baram Jam. Baram is a physiotherapist and a clinical educator based out of the Toronto area. He does a lot of work with individuals who are suffering from musculoskeletal injuries and chronic pain, and he runs his own chronic pain management program called Pain Truth. So we will get into his interpretation of pain and how to manage it and how to focus on one's abilities in spite of having pain as opposed to focusing on their limitations. So let's get right down to business. Great, let's get into it. Okay, Barham Jam, thanks so much for joining me in the Health Lab. My pleasure to be here. Great to see you. You've got a lovely yellow hat on that I can see. Unfortunately, our listeners cannot see it, but it really adds to the dynamic, I think. And it's not to hold my uh, hide my bald head. It's simply fashion statement. I wouldn't have known you were bald aside from your videos uh, other than that. Yeah. <laughs> but actually to, to speak on your videos, I've been, I've been watching a lot of them. You've got quite a few videos on YouTube and you know, there's a lot on, you know, musculoskeletal injury rehab, chronic pain. I want to get into those, you know, details about those in a, in a little bit here. I first want to talk about one of the trends that comes up throughout many of your videos, and that's that's the importance of, of bedside manner and the therapeutic alliance. Can you can you speak to that a little bit more? How, how much weight do you put on developing a strong strong rapport with your clients? Okay, let me go back to my history. I would say in school, I used to say ten percent. You know, we have an hour lecture on. Say, introduce yourself. Hello, my name is Byram Jam. I'm a physiotherapist. I'm going to assess you today. That was the end of it. The rest of it was biomechanical assessment of L45 moving, assess the hip, assess asymmetry, blah, blah. Then mm -hmm. 10 years after I did a few more courses, I studied cognitive behavioral therapy courses. I did blah, blah. I said it's 50% that it's important, right? 50% is that. 50% is your physical assessment, evaluation, what muscles weak and stuff. Mm -hmm. 2020 right now, 90%. So a, a lot of 10% is the shit that we did. Because I think it, it, just, it just grows and grows. Here's the thing, how important it, I've realized it is. Even in patients whom I've been unable to help, meaning I, I, I did my best, I couldn't find a mechanical problem, I did exercise and stuff. When I have that bedside manner or that therapeutic alliance, they're so grateful. And it, to them, it's irrelevant that whether their pain is still there, whether it's not. Just the fact that they knew I was genuinely trying to help them is everything. But my focus used to be, if I didn't cure their problem, then I was a failure as a therapist. It, it's just not true. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So providing that support, really ensuring that they're being heard and listened to and that you're trying to inspire some sort of hope in them. Absolutely. And most people get better to some degree, better meaning the function improves, I get them back to the quality of life, their symptoms hopefully reduce with, uh, with the treatments or interventions such as exercise prescription. But the other thing is exercise prescription is pointless or recommendation, you should do gardening 10 minutes, you should go for a walk. They're not going to comply unless there's therapeutic alliance, unless they trust you and believe you. Now, research studies, they you know, they prescribe exercises to people, but they know that some do it, some don't do it. 
but they don't study what was the level of therapeutic alliance in those studies. You know, it's so true. And I think a, a lot of people, myself included, have had those experiences where they've gone to see you know, a physiotherapist or, or a physician and that relationship isn't there, um, that alliance, that rapport hasn't been established. And then, you know, that individual, the healthcare practitioner goes out and prescribes something. And, you know, myself included, I've been to see a physiotherapist and have not followed up with the recommendations based on a poor experience with that clinician. Yes. And here's the other amazing thing that I've discovered, which goes, you know, against everything I've studied for the last 28 years, <laughs> is that it's almost irrelevant what exercise I prescribe. It's if I have the therapeutic alliance and they comply with the exercise and they do it diligently, even if it's irrelevant exercise, they still get better. Call it the placebo effect. But that's most of our job is the placebo effect. Placebo effect, giving the person the impression that they're getting better, then they can get back into function. That's so interesting. And I know there's so many studies, I mean, on the placebo effect. And I mean, it's an effect for a reason because it works. And I like what you said about, you know, just focusing on what they can do and letting them know that they can get better. And I mean, you know, can you speak a little bit more to focusing more on someone's abilities as opposed to their limitations? Absolutely. It's probably when I teach my, uh, it's a two day persistent pain course that I teach. And at one point I say, I know this is like this second half of the course. It's a second day, three quarters of the way through. But what I'm about to say is the single most important thing that I want you to learn in this persistent pain course that I teach. And it may sound like a simple concept and we break into groups and do it. I want you to assess each other and only say positive things about each other. So when I make somebody bend forward to look at their spine, blah, blah, I said, wow, you move really well. I said, look at your spine, it's perfectly straight. I'm looking at it. I look at their pelvis levels and I'm just bullshitting my way, you know, as I'm pretending I'm looking for asymmetry. So I said, wow, that looks really good. I look at their feet to see if it's pronated and stuff, it's meaningless. I said, wow, your feet look really good. Then I make them like, when I do a straight leg race test and they go to four, 50 degrees, 80 degrees, 90 degrees, whatever it is. I said, wow, you're, you can lift your leg up really well, right? And I said, wow, you're going 90 degrees. You're quite flexible. You've done a good job of keeping fit. I just compliment them. My old Barham Jam as a physiotherapist, going back even 10 years ago, I would say, maybe 15, I, my job was to find flaws in patients because the mentality was the more flaws you can find, then you can treat those flaws and make sure you tell people what their flaws are. Oh, your rib is not expanding enough and all that stuff. I've completely avoided that. Mm -hmm. Now what I do is even when I find dysfunctions, like you know, I'm not gonna lie to a patient who can't bend their knee past 90, I said, wow, you seem to have a stiff knee, but it's okay. But your knee straightening is really good. And the other leg is really good. I just give as much positive information to the patient because how often do people go see a doctor and get good news? Very true. And have you, I mean, you mentioned that there was a bit of a shift, you know, say 10 years ago or what have you. Have you noticed different outcomes, different results since, since taking that newer approach that you have been? Absolutely. Absolutely. I used to be so arrogant to believe I need to find the flaws in my patients. I need to fix those flaws in my patients. And when the patient got better, it was because I found those flaws and I specifically fixed those flaws because there was a direct correlation. I find problems, I fix problems, patient get better. Now, 
I don't find problems. I find good stuff with the patient and make them do the good things. And if they get better even faster and they're even more grateful and I get much more referrals from patients. Incredible how that works. Just phenomenal. And I, I like what you said as well about, um, you know, just, just giving those acknowledgements, giving those, you know, positive words, positive feedback, positive comments to individuals. I, um, I, I take a lot of, of coaching courses, you know, like yeah. motivational interviewing coaching type courses. And I remember I took a course, this is going back about a year or so. And we did this exercise where we stood maybe about a meter across from someone else. And I think they put on a timer for about two minutes. And the whole, the whole exercise was just to barrage that individual with compliments, just about, about their everything, about their traits, about you know, their, their appearance, whatever you can think of, just acknowledge, acknowledge, acknowledge. And there was maybe about 20 people in the course. And I'm pretty sure myself included, every single one, when they were barraged with those acknowledgements, those positive words, positive praise, every single one of us burst into tears. And it was such a joyful moment. And you just walked out of there feeling so heard and listened to and, and appreciated overall. And I, I, I'd imagine that's what some of the clients are going through that you're interacting with. And imagine yours was on a course where you are forced, somebody, you knew somebody was forced to do it or course or told to. But when they get a genuine positive enforcement from a healthcare provider, I think it's invaluable. You know, they they paid money to see me, not so I can give them compliments. They paid money so I can find flaws. But when I, and it has to be genuine. None of it is fake that I tell my patients. And I generally, they tell me, you know, I walk 30 minutes a day. Mm-hmm. I say, wow, that's amazing. You know, how often do you do it? Well, only twice a week. I said, that's, that's fantastic that you're doing it twice a week. I used to say, well, you know, five minutes, five times a week is better. Right. I, right. I don't do that. I don't put people through guilt at all. I mean, we don't do, train dogs this way. Dogs do not respond to negative enforcement. You give them treats if you want the dog to repeat a thing. It just doesn't, we don't know, we know animals don't do that. But for some reason, humans, we think they'll respond by negative enforcement, by making them feel bad about their body. It just does, maybe it works in the short term, negative enforcement. Long term, it fails miserably. So we need to be positive with our patients. It kind of sounds like... Um... Pavlov's bell. Yes. Yeah. That just, Every time I, they come to physio, they feel better because you say positive things, even if nothing's changed. Let's say the range of motion hasn't changed. How are you feeling? I said, wow, you look good. That's, that's so valid. And I, here's, a, here's a question for you with respect to that. Because obviously, I mean, I, I wholeheartedly agree that positivity is invaluable. And maybe this is a little bit of a controversial question, but how do you toe the line between giving someone a realistic prognosis um, for an injury or for an ailment, yet still trying to inspire hope and inspire optimism? I don't think that's controversial at all. First of all, I have a rule. You only tell the truth to a patient. Mm -hmm. I don't make up stuff just to make the patient happy. Somebody with chronic back pain who's had for pain for four years, I don't tell them, oh, I'm going to make you better in six weeks. I expect recovery in three months. You'll be back in work. That's just nonsense. I, I won't make these false promises. Mm-hmm. Absolutely not. There's no lying. There's no sugar coating. I don't want to see people's prognosis through rose-colored glasses. I, I don't want to do that. I, I think that's, that's bad to do. 
And what happens in three months when they're not better? You told me I'd be better, right? I don't ever want that to bite me in the tail. Like an ankle sprain, acute, I'll tell them, yeah, yeah, most people I see, they'll be playing basketball in four weeks from now. This is a grade two end. Certain acute conditions, the prognosis is quite, you know, predictable. So I do make, most likely, I tell them that's, that's going to happen. Like post-knee surgery, most likely you'll be fully weight-bearing and, you know, walking by November, by November, blah, blah, blah. But people with persistent pain, the ones that I see, I say, when they say, when will my pain go away? I say, I can't answer that. I have no idea and no doctor can answer that. And in fact, our goal is not for that. But what I can promise you, our goal with our therapy session is to improve the quality of your life. And I can promise that. And that is a very big term, quality. What does that mean? I mean, you look at all the positive things that you can still do. Um, that's what I make a promise with. And improve your function that you're currently doing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that's valid indeed. Like, well, just like you said, being wholeheartedly honest and truthful about things, yet still trying to highlight their abilities and, and what they can do as opposed to what they cannot do. But everybody wants to know when will my pain go away? And I, I, I refuse to answer that question because there's, I don't want to give a timeline. That would, first of all, it wouldn't be right. It would be untrue. Secondly, the moment you make pain going away, the focus of getting better in air quotes, I just said better, yep. you've lost, you've lost that patient already. They'll be disappointed in you. But if you never make it your goal, then no matter what happens, then the improvement will be seen as a positive move forward. And that's a, that's a good segue into another topic that I wanted to discuss. And I mean, you work so much in, in, in chronic pain and, you know, you know, for, for someone who is suffering from an injury or chronic pain and they are trying to rehabilitate it to make it better, what's, what's the distinction between what might be considered good pain as opposed to bad pain? That's probably one of the most common, uh, discussion that I have with my patients, whether it's acute, subacute or persistent or chronic, as you say, my, I tell every patient there's good pain and there's bad pain. And it's important for us to differentiate it before you leave today. Pain is inevitable. You know, when, especially when during we're having rehab, you know, after a wrist fracture, the cast is off. You need some pain in order to get your wrist extension back, you know, to get your wrist. Well, you, you, your finger's been in a splint because you sprained it in volleyball. There's some pain involved in bending it again. You've had knee surgery. There's some pain involved. Mm-hmm. Good pain is when you experience the pain, but when you stop the activity, you go back to your baseline, whatever your baseline is. However, bad pain is if you do it and for the next day, you're worse, you feel worse and you're not able to do your activity. So that doesn't mean the activity that you did was necessarily bad or wrong. It just means you did too much too soon. In fact, what I recommend is that you reattempt the exact same activity that made you feel worse because we don't wanna have fear of it, but at 50% intensity. So the analogy is, let's say you walk for 15 minutes today and you feel worse afterwards. So it wasn't good pain. The next day you're worse is I can't do it. You need to walk again the next day. Maybe, okay, fine. You can't that next day, the day after, certainly for seven minutes. Mm-hmm. And, and seven minutes, you have good pain, meaning you're no worse. If seven minutes you're worse, then three minutes the next time. And do it a little bit slower pace. And, and so on and so forth. As three minutes you have good pain. The other landmark is, have you lost 50% of your mobility? For example, my shoulder hurt a lot. Like you can normally lift your shoulder up, but now you're going to nine degrees. 
that means that was bad pain. You've lost 50% of your range. It means you've damn, you know, irritated some tissue. But if you still have the range of motion uh, in your back, in your neck, and just the pain has increased, is nothing catastrophic. It's okay. You can reattempt the activity, but at 50% intensity. So still safe to do it, but obviously put limits on these activities and, and know when to dial it back, essentially. I said, the only person that knows what is good pain and bad pain is you, nobody else. I can only make these recommendations based on my experience, based on seeing other people. However, you will know what is, uh, what is good and bad pain. But for now, just remember, not all pain is bad. In fact, without good pain, it's improbable that you will get better or anyone gets better. Like if you break your wrist again, it's impossible to get better if you don't experience some pain in order to gain back your wrist movement. Mm -hmm. Impossible to get better in your back pain if you don't experience daily some back pain. That way your perspective and your relationship with that pain changes because you say, oh, that's good pain. Is it gone now? Yeah, it's gone after I did the activity or settled back down, then it was okay. But if every pain is considered as a catastrophic, it's making me worse, it's tearing my disc more, it's tearing my ligament more, tearing my rotator cuff more, then uh, you're gonna end up being centrally sensitized. Right, and then likely have more fear of movement, which as we know, doesn't do anything really to rehabilitate chronic pain. I had this client um, a few years back. He was a really interesting guy. And he told me this, he was an older guy. He was probably in his late sixties. He was recovering from a concussion. And he told me this quote that really stuck with me. And I still tell it to, well, my friends, my clients, um, my family. And the quote was, I think his father told him this like way back when. And the quote was, once you stop moving, you start dying. And that really, really stuck with me. And it seems like there's some correlation there for individuals who have chronic pain to a degree. You, you need to really move to get over some of your pain. I think that's a great quote. And in fact, it's such a good quote. We, I could make a poster out of it, but I've, I've already made a poster and I've distributed it across Canada. I don't know if you've seen my poster. I think poster. I have, but remind me of it though. It says, if you're thirsty, you need to drink. If you're hungry, you need to eat. If you're in pain, you need to move. And with images mm. about that. But most people say, if you're in pain, you need to rest. That's the typical mentality, but it's wrong. You need to move when you, but the right movement, the right amount, the right direction. That's why you have the discretion of a, a healthcare provider to tell you. But most, I, unfortunately, most family doctors, whatever, when somebody says I'm in pain, they say, well, don't do it, right? I have pain going to the gym. Don't go to the gym anymore. I have pain walking, running. Running hurts my knees. Don't run anymore. So that's a typical answer. Don't do that anymore. I think that's horrible. That's what gets us into that chronic pain state. Yeah, and that cycle of um, stress and anxiety related to movement, which, as we know, fuels that pain cycle, and, and it's a cyclical thing, and it's, it can snowball from there. More pain, more stress, more stress, more pain, and, and so on. And uh, Gordon Waddell, who's one of my ultimate heroes, an orthopedic surgeon from Glasgow, going back to the early 80s, his quote was, the fear of pain is more disabling than the pain itself. But unfortunately, the healthcare profession, the most people instill fear into them, whether it's through radiology, whether it's through telling them they're out of alignment, whether it's telling them don't do X, Y, don't do Z, avoid this, avoid that, or else you're going to damage whatever, all that nonsense. And when are we going to understand that fear of pain is the number one cause of disability and chronic pain? As if patients don't have enough of it, 
the healthcare professionals even add more to it. Indeed, I know that all too well. And um, that kind of, you know, that fear of pain and fear of your condition and your condition progressing and, and, and what it might lead to really, really, again, it, it just plays so much into that fear of movement and that experience of pain. And I, I want to touch on something that came up that I saw in one of your videos um, a little while ago, and it was about telling individuals to try to avoid Googling or internet searching their conditions or their ailments. And that actually spoke, that actually resonated with me quite well because I had, I had laser eye surgery a few years back. And it turns out laser eye surgery is actually one of the safest surgeries out there in terms of negative, negative consequences. There's, there's slim to none. However, the, the night before my laser eye surgery, I went on this website and it was something like, laser eye surgery disasters.com <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was and of course it had all these nightmare stories of people going blind and you know losing their eyes losing their vision and of course i you know pretty well had an anxiety attack prior to the surgery of course i still went through with it with you know very much so positive outcomes but what is your take on that on on you know having clients search or or, or not search um their conditions while you're treating them yeah it's actually I, I, I don't make them sign a contract, but we have to make a verbal agreement. So I, and the people that I start my pain truth program on them, which is a six week program. I said, I'm only going to see you under three, these three conditions. One is you, that you agree to come. I'm not here to force you at all, but you got to come once a week for six weeks. If you're ready for it, great. If you're not, that's one thing you have to agree. Number two is you have to stop all other treatments that you're getting whether it's acupuncture, whether it's massage, if you're not ready to give those up, I'm perfectly okay with it. Then continue with what you're doing. But it's pointless for us to do this program because the program is to make you independent of those treatments. But if you think those therapies are helping you, then by all means continue. But obviously they're not or else you wouldn't be seeking my care. You've been going for three years to the osteopath. You've been getting physio for a year. You've been going to acupuncture for you know, once a week and massage once a week for the last you know, 10 months, whatever mm -hmm. it is. But I'm not here to force you, but that's, or else the program is fine. And number three, you cannot Google or do any internet search on your condition anymore, period. So the internet search, I so said, you can go on the computer, look up cat videos all you want, right? <laughs> you just cannot Google anything health related, anything. And so what about diet related? I said, you can't do that either because I got another guy. These are sometimes people who are literally OCD. Like I know they have a diagnosis with it, and it, it makes it horrible. They constantly want to improve their health. There's something in their health that they need to improve, whether it's the diet or whether it's weight loss or it's about their pain or back pain. What's the best exercise, core exercise? You name it. You've got to stop that insanity. And um, I've never had anyone say no to my Google searching. I've had people say, no, I'm not ready for this. I'm not going to get it. And I'm perfectly respectful. I said, I'm, my door's open. At any time you wish, you're welcome to come in. But the Google search is one of my criteria. Mm -hmm. I think that's so valid. And even, even the other one that you mentioned too about, you know, stopping seeing other healthcare practitioners. And that speaks well to me because I have a, 
all, all the time, see tons of clients and it's not their fault. They just want to get better. But, you know, again, yeah, they're seeing a massage therapist, chiropractor, two different physiotherapists, an occupational therapist, maybe a psychologist, a counselor, and they're, they're a professional patient. They're driving to and from appointments every single day for four to five hours sometimes each day, all these appointments and, and spending thousands and thousands of dollars. And so often it's, it's well, actually not even so often, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to d differentiate between what's working and what isn't working in those situations. I, I, and you said you don't want to blame the patient. Absolutely not. I would, there's no way you would blame a patient. Everyone only wants to get better. And they seek multiple healthcare providers hoping that one of them has the answer. The sad part is when they've done studies, for example, predictive of outcome after a motor vehicle accident, right? Because they study motor vehicle accident with flash associated disorders, who becomes chronic, who gets better within the six weeks soft tissue injury. And one of the strongest predictor is if they, prior to the accident, they used this, they were seeing multiple healthcare providers. For example, people who go for um, the chiropractor treatment once a month, adjustments just for maintenance, or they go to the osteopath for tissue release for maintenance, or they get massage for thing for maintenance. They are, you know, passive treatments. If they got into a car accident, they were significantly more likely to become chronic and not recover within the six week and have disability a year later. If prior to the accident, they were seeking healthcare, right? Even though they had no symptoms. For me, and the reason behind that, I hypothesize, if you believe, if you have the mentality that my body is so fragile that I go out of alignment, my rib goes out, my pelvis goes out, my tissue gets tight, I got to fix my trigger points, then even with normal day-to-day -day activities, then once you get into a car accident, then you're completely screwed. You're like out of alignment galore, and it's going to take months to get you back again. If normal day-to-day -day activities mess up your fragile little body... So it's the mentality that determines everything. So that's, that's why the less healthcare provider one sees, the better. Or at least see one, try it for six weeks, eight weeks, three months, whatever it is. If you improve, wonderful. But if you don't, you can't beat a dead horse. You can't say after two years, my adjustments then will work. That's just insanity. It just it blows my mind. After a year, then my massage therapy trigger point release will be effective. Yeah, that's such an that's a, such an interesting fact. I didn't know about that one, but it makes it makes so much sense about just people's essentially preconceived notions about their their abilities and and their limitations and what it takes to mitigate them in terms of going you know ongoing follow ups with healthcare practitioners and how that might lead into more you know severe experiences of pain following a catastrophic accident. Yeah, and then, well, there's no shortage of studies. One of the highest predictors of chronic pain is, or disability, is passive coping skills, right? Mm -hmm. After an accident. So what they know, people who after an accident, they say, no, I need heat pack, I need ultrasound, I need acupuncture, I need massage, I need adjustments to get me better. Uh, I need tingling machines. They're more likely to become chronic and disabled. But what I'm quoting is even pre-accident, if you had passive coping skills. And the question is, is it cultural? Is it familial? It's multiple factors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A big cultural component to it also, of course, passive coping skills. Yeah, that's valid. And, and you know, the same thing comes up. I work a lot in concussion and this, there's so much overlap between post-concussion syndrome and chronic pain. And a lot of studies really support um, 
the, the, there's a lot of evidence there that um, speaks to an individual's experience with mood disorders, like depression and anxiety. And if they have previous mood disorders, like previous history of mental health issues, um, their outcomes are typically a lot less favorable following a concussion than someone who doesn't or hasn't experienced previous mood disorders going into the concussion. Yeah, I think it, well, once you become centrally sensitized, every symptom you've ever had becomes magnified. Again, mm -hmm. going back to motor vehicle accident and whiplash, the single highest predictor of chronicity after a motor, simple motor vehicle accident, WAD2, is a previous history of neck pain. So mm. that's what determines. Like a year ago, I was in a car accident or I had some neck pain before, previous. Second one is psychosocial distress, pre-existing. Right. Where does, where does, um, cause I know you've spoken to this, you know, a few times in some of your videos, where does, where does proving your pain or how, how does having to prove your pain fit into predictors of success as well? And maybe you can talk about what proving your pain is as well. Absolutely. Um, proving your pain is, um, comes from most of the studies done by Michael Sullivan. He is a PhD psychologist in university, McGill university in Montreal. He teaches the course called PGAP, Progressive Goal Attainment Program. Mm -hmm. A lot of OGs attend that course. That's right. Of course, he's an excellent speaker, amazing researcher. His initial studies were so much on pain catastrophization and the pain catastrophization scale, which has been validated, catastrophization predictors. But his other area is perceived injustice is one of the, again, one of the highest predictor of persistent pain. When people have the sense of injustice, now that's a big term, perceived injustice. It automatically means if you've got a lawyer, you think, then you have that sense of perceiving. Yeah, that I, I despise personal injury lawyers who are bloodsuckers. Not all of them, mm -hmm. majority of them though, especially the ones that go after acute injuries and they tell them you're not going back to work for a year as if they can predict. Anyways, that's, let me not go on my lawyer rant. Fair. So, but of course they increase that sense of perceived injustice. It's in their advertisement, get the money that you deserve, mm -hmm. that you're old, right? Just that mentality, I deserve it. And the moment you perceive that you deserve something because of your pain and suffering that you've experienced, then you're going to become chronic. It's just the way it is. And now it's not just about lawyers. Even if the sense of injustice, uh, proving your pain you're talking about, even if it's your family, your spouse um, doesn't believe you. For example, they, uh, for example, they say, my husband, you know, he's got back pain, but I, I think he's just too lazy to go to work or he just doesn't want to help out in the garage. That would piss off the person and their pain will become magnified in order to prove to the spouse, I'm, I'm in real pain. And they want to prove to their spouse that they're in pain, but they'll do it indirectly by, uh, by not, by increasing their pain. And then or it goes the other way where the man may say, oh, my wife, she's just lazy. She doesn't want to cook anymore. She doesn't really have the neck pain. I don't think it's that bad. That mm. would really upset the woman. And inevitably, even if it's not said quite that way, but it's insinuated in any way, you get that sense of perceived injustice or that they have to prove their pain. Their pain increases. So mm -hmm. make a call to an insurance adjuster to every time you have to fill out the form to say that I'm in pain, I can't do it. It's like you have to prove your pain to the insurance adjuster. You have to prove your pain to workman's compensation. The whole society is built on a position that you have to prove your pain. Every time you visit the doctor who want, you want to fill out the form, your sickness form, you're in a position to prove your pain. 
the moment you have to prove your pain, boom, you're becoming chronic. It's like, a, <clears throat> excuse me, it's like if you call in sick to work and then your boss calls you and you answer the phone like, uh, hello. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it kind of works the other way too, though. <clears throat> I don't know if you've experienced yeah. this with some of your clients, but you know, I've got some clients who um, you say they get a back injury or, or any kind of injury really. And, you know, it's, it's their family comes in and it's all hands on deck. Like, okay, let's, let's let Magda lie on the couch for the next two years and not do anything. We'll do, you know, and I don't actually have a client named Magna. I just made that name up obviously, but uh, you know, we'll do all the housework. We'll do all the vacuuming. She's in some pain. She cannot do a single thing. You know, we'll rub her feet, put her socks on, put her shoes on for her. And even though, you know, they, 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 they think they're doing good and they are doing good. They're, they're doing a nice thing. They're helping out someone in need quite often that support is not what is best for that person in that situation. That person needs to be able to get up and, and, and do what they can within their abilities. Yes. And speaking of spouse, there, there's two extreme type of spouses. The ones that excessively help their partner because of love, you know, they help put their shoes on, put their hand on, carry them up. And I said, no, no, stop it. Let him put on his own shoes right now. Let him put on his own socks. And then there's the ones that are totally uncaring, Nah, there's nothing wrong with you. You can do it yourself. You're just being lazy. And both extremes are obviously bad. There's, mm -hmm. there's a balance to amount of love that you can give to your, your significant other, your partner, or your child for that matter, right? Children over you know, protecting them is horrible. I've seen that certainly in my pediatric population, parents who are overprotective. Mm -hmm. and, and I haven't seen uncaring parents. I guess they wouldn't maybe bring them to physio. Oh, I have. I saw a case. With this hockey player guy, he had a concussion, uh -huh. and I, I put him privately. I said, you know, he didn't want to go back to playing hockey. And his mother was saying, no, you can still play hockey after a concussion. Wow. He didn't want, and you know what the crazy part of that was? I, I remember it now. The, the mother was a family doctor herself. He was an MD. Wow. And oh, was pushing her son to go back to play hockey, but the boy didn't want to play hockey. What do you think that was, was that due to lack of education on her behalf or just, you know, being a overly pushy mother? Pushy mother. That's all I can think of. I mean, having a medical degree was utterly irrelevant. She just, maybe she's thinking, I want what's best for my son. And he's such a great hockey player. I don't want him to give up his passion and I don't want him to give up on his hope or whatever. And the guy, he didn't want to play hockey anymore. Wow. And and so despite the concussion, and that was an over, and the, the way the son was seeing it, he's just, my mother's just uncaring. I'm telling him I still have headaches. I still have things. No, you can still play hockey. That's, yeah, that's wild. So, I mean, just like you said, it's, 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 there's got to be some sort of balance between absolutely helping out, you know, doting on the person to a degree and, and, you know, drawing them a bath and getting them a bowl of soup, but then also letting them regain their independence over time. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So how does that, I mean, I want to talk a little bit more about your pain program. So it's a, a six-week program. Can you talk about, you know, who it's for and, and, and kind of give me the brief uh, synopsis of what it entails? Sure. This is, it's taken me over 10 years to develop this program. It's go, and it's, the information is all on thepaintruth.org. It's a freely, freely accessible website. All my videos are there. They're freely accessible, everything. Um, and there's an app also, the pain, pain truth dot, uh, no, it's just an app, the pain okay. truth, yeah. you have to search for it. I'll put those and, in the show notes. Sure. 
And the point of the bride, it's a six week, you attend once a week and you see a healthcare provider. And it's usually OTs and PTs that have done my persistent pain course. And there's an online training version of it where you can become a pain truth certified provider. Mm -hmm. The goal of that program is to ask people, name three activities that you would like to achieve, that you would like to get back into, that you have difficulty with as a result of your condition, whatever it is, your back pain, concussion, neck pain, shoulder pain, foot amputation, whatever it is. And they pick three goals. And our job is to figure out, and it has to be goals that they're motivated to achieve, that they desire to do. And that's the hard part, right? They say, well, I want to run a marathon. Have you ever run a marathon? No, but it would be nice. Well, can we pick something else? <laughs> right? Yep. So, and so it's our job. And then once they, it's called patient-led goal setting. And the patient determines what the goals are. And I don't determine when they do what. They have to determine when they do what, which is all part of motivational interviewing, right? Mm-hmm. They've got to decide how important that goal is for them. And when they choose their own goals at the, own, at the pace that they want to do it. So this week, what is realistic that you can achieve? How confident are you? You know, you want to be able to walk one hour a day. That's great. But what can you do this week to begin with? Um, I, don't, I won't be able to do an hour this week. Fine. How long can you do? Maybe 30 minutes. How confident are you? I'm, you know, two out of 10 confident. Can we pick something that you are confident, like nine or a 10? They say, I'm a... I can, can you do five minutes? And I said, well, I can do five minutes. All right, why don't we do five minutes of walking this week? How many times a week can you do it? Can you do it seven days a week? Uh, maybe. I said, how many times do you think you can do it this week? Twice, five minutes? I could do that. Okay, twice, five minutes. That's our instruction. That's the week number one. That's all I want them to do. And usually when they come back with that type of goal setting, They've achieved that goal. I just need them to achieve a little goal by week two. Then I got them in the palm of my hand. Amazing. You did your two times a week, five minutes. Well, yeah, that was easy. Well, that's all we want. And then the rest of the program is easy, blah, blah, blah. We expand on that. And all along, we provide, I provide in the videos, pain neuroscience education. Mm-hmm. It seems like when people understand pain, you reduce the threat value of pain. And this highest predictor of chronicity, as I said, is fear of pain and fear of movement. If somebody said, what's the own, the primary purpose of my pain truth program is to reduce the fear of movement and physical activity and function. But that's done through improving sleep and, you know, expanding on successes. So that's the gist of it. So progressive, progressive goal setting and, and, and providing some very holistic education and treatment along the way. In conjunction with how to manage stress, manage proper diet, manage hydration, being outdoors, vitamin D levels, make sure you got it right, improve sleep, uh, perceived injustice, negative self-judgment, your relationship with pain. All that stuff is covered in that six weeks based on where they score that they need most of the work. That's what the app does. Yes, it's a questionnaire and you decide uh, which which area is most important. Everyone's unique. Mm -hmm. And are are these all private? paying clients or is this funded by insurers as well or yeah my patient population that i see and the physiotherapists who are trained in it is private practice that we see that however i get a significant caseload of people that i see for free simply because they don't have the finances to pay they've been unemployed they haven't had a job in so long because of their pain um and i feel i'm i owe it to them because if they don't do this pain program the alternative that they have is pain clinics that they've been to, injections and opioids. 
I mean, they've already exhausted healthcare providers. And going back to the previous topic, my definition of success even is not about the pain going away after the 6B program. I make sure I say that right in the beginning. It's to improve the quality of life. And the, the consistent thing that has happened is that people stop all visits to their other healthcare, whether it's physio, chiro, massage. Never, I never tell them to stop psychology, though, just so you know. Yeah. Like, Good idea. Psychiatrist, <laughs> those passive treatments, physical treatments, I will say. When they discontinued it, and I had one guy who had got a second mortgage. He said he had spent about $30,000 in the last three years on healthcare professionals. Wow. And he was continuing to seek online. He was obsessed with online, and everyone would, would hink him. Like, they would promise him so many three months of treatment adjustments to your C12. That's going to help you. These orthotics are the best orthotics that you're going to, you know, another $500 there. And whatever. They just con them $30,000. And I said, you're going to stop all treatments. And I saw him for free. I knew he had no, I didn't certainly want him to get loaned for my treatments. I saw him for a good three months. I'm still a regular in touch with him via phone calls and via uh, emails to him. He stopped all treatments. Not only didn't his pain get any worse by stopping all treatments. It didn't. He's feeling significantly better. Um, he's still not fully functional. I don't want to give the sense that I cured him. Um, but zero expenses on healthcare. And he's so grateful for that for me. Wow. That's a, that's a noble cause. And it sounds like you're getting some good results as well. Um, wow. Thanks so much for that, Bahram. And so you mentioned paintruth.org and the Pain Truth app. Where else could people go if they want more information on you or, or, or the services that you offer? Um, but the services that I offer, like seeing patients, I, I'll be honest, I don't need more patients because I had a wait list. <laughs> and that's purely word of mouth. That, that's my thing. And I love seeing my patients. It's just, I can't do too much of it. I love patient care because my focus is more on um, teaching and what, I would, what I'm passionate about, passing on this stuff that I know to other healthcare providers. Because it shouldn't be just me who's doing this. It absolutely shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Hence, I developed the website. I would say the paintruth.org and... Uh, the Pain Truth app is pretty much what I want to promote. And it's not promoting Barham Jam. My name is not on any of those things because it's not about Barham Jam. I just, then the information that's in there, I've taken from everybody else. That is, I put it in one place though. So um, I just, I don't, I have no interest in becoming famous or rich by seeing patients in chronic pain. I, I just don't. I really, what drives me, my passion for other healthcare providers to know this information. That's excellent. Yeah, disseminating it and uh, to, just for as many people out there to, to gain and, and, and grow from it, either as a clinician or, or as a patient or, or as both, it sounds like. And I could care less if Barham Jam is known by people. Again, my, my name is not even in the Pain Truth workbook that people you need for the program. And the fact that you're seeing, seeing people pro bono, I think it speaks very, very highly to your integrity as a clinician as well. You can say it's for selfish reasons that I do it because it truly makes me feel good. I can't think of a better thrill in life that I can get than people say, you gave my life back. I can't think of anything greater achievement in life. And you know what? That's, that's why we work in this industry. That's why we work as healthcare practitioners. There's no amount of money that could motivate me to do that. Just isn't. Excellent. I think, I think a lot of people um, could benefit from hearing 
those words, um, entering the healthcare industry or those who have even been in it for a long, long time. Yeah. Now, don't get me wrong. I still get paid for what I do. <laughs> I have to eat food, but that's not the incentive. That's all I'm trying to say. Totally agree. Totally agree. Well, thanks so much, Baram. Really, really enjoyed our conversation today. And um, any any final final advice or recommendations out there for anyone suffering from chronic pain that we have that you can pass on in the last few minutes here? And I would say. Seek a healthcare provider, always ask, can you teach me what I can do to get better? That should be, because that should be our goal. If they say, no, I will adjust this and this, I will fix this and this, I will give you this machine and stuff. I say, run away. If they, I mean, we know it hasn't worked because that's why you end up in chronic pain. So anybody with persistent pain, seek a healthcare provider who focuses on you getting yourself better. Excellent advice, Sparam. Thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. Great. All right. Have a nice day. There you have it, folks. Dr. Baram Jam really enjoyed our conversation today on communication, chronic pain, the therapeutic alliance, and, and really how to take control of your life, of your, of your activities of daily living following an injury or following chronic pain. So many good information points there. So be sure to check out Barham's websites. They are listed in the show notes. And also, again, those YouTube videos, incredibly informative and really, really funny too. Just very enjoyable all around. And I really think anyone who is suffering from pain can benefit from watching any of those videos. And join us in two weeks' time. I will be having a conversation with Dr. Andre Villun, who is a neuropsychologist based out of the Vancouver area. Dr. Villun and I actually used to work quite closely in a concussion rehabilitation program about four or five years back. So we'll be interesting to pick his brain about concussions and how treatment and management of them have evolved over the past few years because they are changing on an ongoing basis. So be sure to stay tuned for that. And until then, stay happy, stay healthy, enjoy the weather, folks. Take care.